I'm Chris Voigt. I'm a synthetic biologist in the biological engineering department at MIT. And today I'm going to talk to you about some of the work that we've been doing to create a programming language for living bacteria. And so when you think of programming, you might think about building a piece of software for a computer or trying to control a robot. But what we've done is actually created software that allows somebody to write a program that then gets compiled into a piece of DNA that gets put into cells and then can be run in those cells. The reason we want to do this is that computation underlies everything that we see in biology. And if we really want to exploit the products that biology can produce, we have to be able to control uh, what types of computation cells are doing and how they're thinking and processing their environment. So what really inspires us is all of the things that we can get by engineering biology. And so believe it or not, this is already an enormous economy. So about 2% of the United States economy, or $350 billion a year, comes from engineered biology. This is genetically modified cells that produce a product of some sort. And we're surrounded by these products in all sorts of consumer goods, from the plastics that are in bottles and your car, to precursors to medicines, to the foods that we eat. But there's one thing that's common across all of these different products, and that's how simple they are. So if you look at the bottom of this slide, you see that every one of these chemicals that we produce is actually quite simple. It's a few carbons and oxygen, hydrogen, and so on. And it is really a very simple thing that we might be able to get. What we want to be able to do is actually fully unleash the potential of biology. And there are all sorts of things that biology can do that we don't know how to really access yet. So they can make chemicals that are impossibly sophisticated for organic chemistry or build entire organs like the liver. Uh, it's a natural nanotechnology. So cells can build materials out of silicon or iron that are sophisticated and really have a level of uh, accuracy that extends well beyond what we can do in the lab. And then finally, there are all sorts of functions that we'd like to be able to access. So uh, at the bottom of the slide, I'm showing cells or bacteria that can associate with a plant in order to deliver fertilizer to that plant. And that requires uh, real sophistication in the way that the bacterium is interacting with that host. And so the reason that we can't access all of these yet as products of biotechnology is really for two reasons. The first reason is that all of these functions require many genes. And all of the products that we current get out, currently get out of biology are maybe two, three, four, five genes, something like that. Whereas these types of products require control over hundreds of genes, or even thousands. And then it's not just enough to be able to control those genes. You have to tell each gene when exactly to turn on, the timing, and also the location. So the particular environmental conditions where that particular gene has to turn on. And so this is really what we're trying to address in our work, where we wanted to create a language that allows a biotechnology person, somebody that's doing genetic engineering, to go into a cell that they're trying to build and tell exactly what genes to turn on at what times as part of building these products. So now, if you're not used to thinking about cells as doing computation, they're actually doing computation all of the time. They're thinking and processing about their environment. They're figuring out where they are. They're figuring out what genes need to be turned on to survive. And the way that it's doing this computation is that it uses a really large, sophisticated regulatory network. 
And a regulatory network is just where you have proteins, you have DNA and RNA that are all interacting with each other. And within these interactions, you then get computation that arises. So what I'm showing here is one of the first regulatory networks to be figured out. And really, it's, it's encoding a very simple decision that a virus makes when it enters a, a bacterium. So it basically has to decide, am I going to immediately kill this bacterium and escape into the environment? Or am I going to hide out in its genome to survive for a longer time? So this yet-snow decision gets encoded uh, by these different interactions. And so if you look at this plot, you'll see that there are circles, and these are proteins. And there are lines, and these are interactions. And the horizontal lines are the DNA that they bind to. And altogether, they work together to create this switch. So at first, in the 70s and 80s, as this was being uh, discovered, people started to use some language like switches and, and uh, logic and things like that. And then in the 90s, as these networks got more and more sophisticated, you started to see some of the language of electrical engineering being used uh, in describing these types of networks. So if you look carefully, uh, you can see that there are going to be some cases. So for example, if you look up here, uh, where you see these little gates. And so these are symbols out of electrical engineering that describe a logic operation that's being done. So those red arrows are the signals that are going into that logic. They get processed, and then there's an output. And if you look at the natural uh, regulatory networks that are in bacteria, they get huge. So what I'm showing here is this mothball is an interaction network uh, for the bacterium E. coli, where all of the red circles are proteins and the blue lines are interactions. And it's all of these proteins and their interactions and the way that they interact with DNA that is allowing that bacterium to compute on its environment. And so somehow the cell is able to get hundreds of regulators to work together. Now, for about the last 10 or 15 years, a variety of researchers have started to create what are known as synthetic circuits. And this is where there's a circuit function that they may want to produce, like an oscillator. And then they figure out how to get the right regulatory proteins to interact with each other in order to create that oscillation that they want. And so, for example, I'm showing at the bottom of this slide where a few of these regulatory proteins are wired together to create an oscillator. The green uh, little images are bacteria that are oscillating. And you can see in the graph the quantification of those oscillations. And so a lot of these types of circuits have been built that are oscillators or pulse generators or logic functions, just about anything that, that you see in, in electrical engineering it has been reproduced. But there's been a challenge. And that is that all of these circuits have been limited to two, three, four regulatory proteins. And we know that there's this possibility where the bacteria has hundreds of interacting regulatory proteins, but we haven't been able to bridge that gap to go from simple circuits to the level of sophistication that cells naturally have, which is what's ultimately going to be required to control them. And on top of that, even building one of these simple circuits requires years of effort and tends to be a, a very high-profile type thing to do. And so we wanted to both try to build larger circuits, but then also make it faster. And so first, what are the things that are stopping us from making this transition from a, a few simple regulatory proteins to getting it across the entire uh, network to make things that are at the scale of genomes? So first, one of the biggest problems is with design. 
And this is where there simply haven't been enough well-characterized regulatory proteins where we understand how they behave at such a quantitative level that we can predict how they're going to work together as we combine them. There's also a problem where software doesn't really exist to help you with that process. And so researchers are forced to manually put pieces of DNA together in a word processor to try to figure out how to build one of these circuits. And then finally, there's also a lot of toxicity that can arise, where as you put these pieces into DNA, they can start to hurt them. The second problem is just the physical construction. So building a big piece of DNA is actually quite challenging. And putting all of those pieces together without creating errors has been a big problem. But there have been a lot of technology recently that helps us address this. And then finally, going in and debugging one of these circuits is a challenge. We're putting them into living cells that change based on their environment and what stage of growth they are. It's often difficult to see how the circuit is performing. And you usually have to look at dynamic measurements. So you can't just take a picture of the cells and from that one picture know that the circuit's working. You have to follow it over time. And that can sometimes be a real challenge. So throughout this talk, I'm going to describe how we've gone in and addressed a number of these different challenges. And so the paradigm that we decided to do was to really uh, go after creating a, a software program that would allow a user to go in and in the same way that they're programming a computer, they could program a cell. So the first step of this is that a user would go in and write a textual program that then the software compiles into a circuit diagram that's made up of individual gates that are connected together in order to create the circuit function that's desired. Then the software creates the DNA sequence associated with that circuit function which then can be sent off and synthesized by a company, sent back to you, you put it into a cell, and then the program that was written in the computer gets run in the bacterium. And so there are two stages to get this to work. The first, of course, is just getting all of the software, and uh, that was relatively straightforward. One of the most challenging things were getting the gates, or the fundamental units of computation, that work so robustly that you can put them together in different configurations to allow a user to create any program that they wanted. So if you're not used to thinking about how cells do computation, there's a little animation here that shows how we do it. So if you have a sensor, uh, this is, as we define it, a piece of DNA that allows the cell to respond to a signal and then control the expression of a gene. And the way that this works is that in the sensor, there's a piece of DNA that encodes a gene that makes a protein that then can bind to the signal. So in this case, it's a small molecule shown in red. And when that protein binds to the molecule, it can then bind to DNA at a promoter. And this causes a flux of RNA polymerase that then turns on the gene that this is connected to. And so if you have a uh, presence of the molecule, this causes a high flux of RNA polymerase. And in the absence of that molecule, there's a slow uh, flux of RNA polymerase. And so in defining a sensor, we can then black box this and just think about the different levels of uh, signal that's present and the different fluxes that this then causes. We can then define a circuit similarly, except that in a circuit, we have both the input and the output as RNA polymerase fluxes. And so uh, in this case, we have a circuit that takes a high uh, flux of RNA polymerase as the input, and then converts this to a low flux of RNA polymerase as the output. 
And uh, so this acts as an inverter, and you can see the response function. And what's really key about this design is that because both the inputs and the outputs are the same, they're both RNA polymerase fluxes, it becomes very easy to connect them to sensors and to each other. And so, uh, for example, you can have a, a sensor that has a signal that's an input and an RNA polymerase flux as an output, and this can be connected to a circuit that has both the input and the output as a flux. This can then be connected to another circuit, and this can be done ad nauseum until you're, uh, you're sick of it. And then the last step is you take an RNA polymerase flux as the input and convert this into a cellular response. And the device that does that is called an actuator. And so to figure this out, we turned to some theory from electrical engineering. And uh, something that had been recognized in that field is that some logic functions are what are known as Boolean complete. And what this means is that anything that you can imagine on the computer can be broken down into uh, these simple Boolean complete logic gates uh, without any additional computational fun uh, functions. It is uh, one of the basic principles that allows digital computing. And so one of these functions is what's known as a NOR gate. And a NOR gate is a two input, one output logic function. So here I'm showing the, um, uh, the uh, electrical engineering uh, diagram for a two input, one output NOR function. And then this is the logic function that this produces. So when both of the input signals are off, the output is on. And if either is on, or they're both on, then the output is off. So believe it or not, uh, that simple function is all that's required to build anything that you see in a computer. So now, uh, that's sometimes hard to wrap your head around. So I like to use the example of the Apollo 11 missions to the moon. Uh, these were very basic computers at the time. And believe it or not, they were entirely based on interconnected NOR gates. So it took 5,600 NOR gates in order to create the guidance systems that took those astronauts to the moon. And so if we had 5,600 NOR gates that we, could in a that we could put into a bacterium, we could reproduce the Apollo guidance systems within a cell. So the trick then becomes, how do we create a uh, logic function, that's this NOR function, that can be encoded in DNA? So to do this, we turned to a basic logic function that had been done previously. And this is what's known as a NOT gate. And a NOT gate just does the opposite of whatever you tell it to do. And so if the input is on, the output is off. And if the input is off, the output is on. And so you can very easily build a NOT gate in DNA. And the way that you do it is the following. You just have a uh, repressor. So this is a gene that produces a protein that then uh, turns off a, a promoter. And so then we have an input that's a, a promoter. So you have RNA polymerase flux that's going into the gate. It then produces the repressor protein. And this then turns off the output promoter. And so what you can see at the bottom of this slide is the response function. So as you turn on the input promoter, it turns off the output promoter. So we can then convert this very easily into a NOR function just by having a second promoter upstream of this gate. So now we have two input promoters connected to each other in the DNA. And if either of those input promoters are on, then you have RNA polymerase flux 
producing the repressor protein, which then turns off the output. And so if you look at the logic function that's produced, you have the case where if both those promoters are uh, off, then the output is on. And it's only the case where if either is on or they're both on, that then you uh, turn the, the gate off. And so that's this basic NOR function uh, upon which you can build uh, any other circuit function that you want. Now what's really critical about this design is that both the inputs and the outputs of the gate are promoters. And so this means that you can take the output promoter of one gate and feed that as the input promoter to the next gate. And you can just do that in series until you've built up the circuit function that you want. But there's a problem with that. So if we go back to the Apollo 11 circuit boards, which were based on NOR gates, we found that all of the, uh, these NOR gates are basically the same gate architecture, and they're physically separated uh, from each other on the circuit board. And so you can use the same design over and over and over again and just connect them because they're physically separated. But a cell looks more like a burrito where all the biochemicals are pushed together and bumping into each other. And so if you had 5,600 NOR gates based on 5,600 repressor proteins, all of those proteins are bouncing off of each other and bouncing off everything else that's in the cell. And this can create interference between them. So one of the first things that we had to do was to find repressor proteins that wouldn't interfere with each other or with the cell. So to do this, we went in and we went into uh, genomic databases and using some computational programs, we found a number of different repressor proteins uh, and then created synthetic promoters that responded to those repressors. And so what I'm showing as the grid is all of the different repressors and all of the promoters that have been designed for them and how they interact with each other. If it's a red square, that means that they interact. And if it's blue, that means that they don't interact. So for example, in this case here, if you go to the, um, the TEDR protein, then it is binding to its promoter, but then isn't interfering with any of the other uh, promoters in the system. And what you see then is for this uh, set of repressors and promoters, there's a core set of about 16 that don't interfere with each other. And that means those are 16 gates that you can use together as part of a circuit design. So then for each one of these non-interfering repressors and their promoters, we then characterized uh, the response function. And that shows how the gate turns off as the input promoter turns on. And that gives us the information that the computer can then use to figure out how to put together the gates to build a desired circuit. So now there were a lot of tricks that we had to use to get this to work. And one of the big problems uh, was that all of these different gates were interfering with each other. And so if you used a gate in one context, it wouldn't work when you tried to build it in another circuit. And so what we had to do is we had to create insulators that allowed these gates to be moved around in a lot of different combinations uh, in order to build whatever circuit function somebody may want. And so to do this, we had to insulate all of the underlying parts. We had to make it so that you could interconnect promoters easily and you could stop uh, the RNA polymerase flux from bleeding from one of the gates into the other, which would then screw up the computation. When we did this, we had to rebuild the gates to make a set of insulated uh, gates that could all be used in a lot of different configurations. 
And this involved a lot of legwork in figuring out those parts that could make each one of these gates perform robustly uh, without interfering with all of the other gates in the library. Then once we did that, and we had this set of underlying gates that worked well, we then started to develop the software that would help us put them all together. So to do this, we turned to some software languages that had been developed previously in electrical engineering to help them build more sophisticated circuit functions. And so we turned specifically to a language known as Verilog, which has been around since the 1980s. And this is how electronic chips are designed. It's a hardware-independent language, meaning that you can generically describe a circuit function, and you can compile it to an Intel chip or an AMD chip or an FPGA or whatever you want. And what we did is we went in and hacked it so that instead of compiling a circuit to silicon, it would compile it to DNA. And this is the scheme for how it works. A user goes in, and this is a web-based program, and they can write the circuit function that they want using uh, Verilog commands. Then once they hit compile, this, the program then figures out the circuit diagram and the gates that are necessary in order to create that circuit function. It then goes into our library of insulated gates and figures out how to put all of these gates together in such a way that you can get a good circuit function. It then st strings them together as a linear piece of DNA and the output of the program is the DNA sequence, which these days can be sent off to a DNA synthesis company. And then a few weeks later, you get your program. You can put it in cells and test it out. And so everything in the dashed box here is completely hidden from the user. We wanted to make a compiler where you just write your program, and then out comes the DNA on which uh, that program is encoded. And so this is uh, a software. This is a movie showing how the software actually works. Uh, so you go into it, and you first have to set the sensors that you want. So you may want your circuits to sense a small molecule or oxygen or a, a metabolite or a communication signal from another cell. And you can either use the ones we have or upload your own. You then write the circuit function that you want using this uh, Verilog language. And so here we're just showing a very simple logic function that's being uh, written. And then you go in, and there are a couple things that you can specify. So you choose the organism that you're compiling this program for. In this case, we're looking at E. coli. And the gate technology, which is, in this case, based on our repressors. Um, and people can go in and upload other organisms and other gate technologies. Then there, you have to select the outputs, whether they're fluorescent reporters just to figure out if your circuit works, or if you're trying to connect it to some function in the cell. Then you can go back, and the first thing that you have to do is verify that the Verilog code works well. And then once it's uh, verified, you can then compile the program. And so now as it's being run, uh, the software is going in. It's taking that, those text commands for the circuit that's desired. It's figuring out the circuit diagram that needs to be built. It's taking all of the different gates in our library and assigning them to those positions. And then it's building the DNA sequence. So here we're looking at the results of the, of the software. It's telling us what gates are connected. And for all the different states of the circuit, which sets of repressors are being produced. It's making sure that those response functions for all of those gates cross each other nicely, and thereby making a, a nice overall circuit function. And then finally, it actually predicts the experiments. So this is showing the distributions that an experimentalist would get 
uh, if they ran a uh, method called float cytometry that allows you to look at tens of thousands of cells. And then finally, this is the uh, sequence that comes out. And so this is uh, in NCBI format. And this is the DNA sequence that then encodes the program that was written uh, a few seconds ago. And so that could be sent off and synthesized. So once we had this, uh, we started to go in and uh, design and build these circuit functions. This is one of the first ones that we tried to build. And this is what's known as a multiplexer. And a multiplexer is just a circuit that has three inputs. And one of those inputs selects between the other two to figure out what the output should be. So it's a three input, one output logic function. What I'm showing is the uh, program that was written. And then everything uh, that came out of the compiler once synthesized uh, was uh, run. And so uh, the first thing that had to happen is that it created the wiring diagram. It then uh, figured out what repressors need to be at what positions of the circuit, and then created the linear piece of DNA. And then what I'm showing uh, over here is the data. So we have each of the different states of the circuit, uh, so all of the different combinations of inputs. And then in black, we have the experiments, which is showing the response in uh, tens of thousands of cells. And then the red distribution is what was predicted by the program if it's low. And if it's the blue distribution, that's what it was predicted if it was high. And so you can see in this case, uh, we were able to very accurately get a circuit function that, that we had written. And so uh, we did this for more complex circuits. So this is a priority circuit. Basically, it assigns a priority to three inputs. And then the three outputs are a determination of that priority. So again, we wrote the circuit function, hit compile, and then created the DNA sequence uh, that was associated with that. And so again, this time now, we have three outputs and three inputs. And if you look across all of the states, there is very close agreement between how the cells were performed and how they were predicted to do. And so this was really a revolutionary idea in, in uh, accelerating the way in which we build these circuits. And so we started to go really fast. So once we had this ability, whereas before it would take months or years to design one of these circuits, we could really, every time, push a button and get a new prediction, go out, build it, and test it. And so we did this for many, many uh, circuits. So we built almost a megabase of DNA associated with roughly 60 different circuit functions that we tested. And we found that all but 13 worked perfectly uh, the first time. And those 13 that failed tended to fail in, in ways where we could figure out what happened after the fact. And so this is now uh, a way where a researcher can have a circuit function that they want. Uh, they can write it and then compile it to a piece of DNA that uh, has a pretty good likelihood of, of working in the first try. So then the next step is taking one of these circuit functions and connecting it up to everything else in the cell. And so uh, the circuit function is giving the cell the computational ability uh, to perform some function. But then that gets connected to sensors that feed into the circuits. And then the output of the circuits are connected to a variety of different um, things in the cell that you're trying to control. So in this example, we're sort of imagining bacteria that can grow antibiotic cloth by knowing to turn on silk proteins at certain times, secreting those proteins out using a protein secretion device. 
and uh, building the antibiotic and loading that into the material and then killing themselves after it's all done. And you could take a multi-step function like that and encode it in a cell and control it using uh, a circuit like the ones that we've built. So now that we've done this for, for simple model organisms, we're extending it to a variety of different organisms so that we can go after different applications. We've built circuit functions that work in a bacterium called Bacteroides, and this lives in the gut. And we've shown that in mice in which these Bacteroides bacteria have colonized, by feeding the mice different foods, we can trigger different circuitry in the bacteria that's living in the gut and change how the bacteria are eating food or producing a therapeutic effect as a way of ultimately creating a human therapeutic. We're also moving these types of circuits into bacteria that associate with plants so that they can be uh, planted with uh, agricultural crops and then uh, used in order to uh, tell those plants different things that are happening about their environment and computing and thinking about that. And we've even moved some of these basic circuit functions into yeast as part of fermentation processes or mammalian cells as part of uh, therapeutics. So with that, I'll conclude. Uh, there are a number of people that participated in this research. Uh, so notably, Doug Densmore is at the Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Department at Boston University. And he's an expert in Verilog and design automation and was crit critical for making this work. Uh, there are a number of people, uh, both in his lab and my lab, that have been involved in this research. Everything from building the gates and insulating them uh, to building the software package that allows us to put them together. So with that, thank you.